This is Nate Wuggy Help with Stacy Harbaugh with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A new report from the nonpartisan Legislative Audit Bureau is raising some concerns about how millions of dollars used to expand broadband service in Wisconsin during the pandemic was spent. The Capital Times reports millions of dollars in federal grants were awarded to the state's Public Service Commission in 2020 to be distributed to broadband providers to help expand Internet access during the beginnings of the COVID pandemic. The report found the Public Service Commission did not document any efforts to find out if broadband providers actually constructed any projects, nor did the providers say how much they actually spent. Additionally, providers were supposed to submit documents stating the minimum and maximum upload and download speeds, but only one provider provided this documentation. The Enbridge Line 5 pipeline will be allowed to continue to flow through Indigenous land. The Associated Press reports a federal judge ruled today that the oil and gas pipeline can continue to run until the 40-mile reroute is finished. The Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa sued Enbridge back in 2019, demanding that the section of pipeline running across tribal land be removed. They said that they were concerned the pipeline could rupture and contaminate drinking water in the area. In the meantime, the Department of Natural Resources is finalizing an environmental impact statement for the reroute project, and Enbridge says it has reached an agreement with all private landowners impacted by the new route. Former Supreme Court Justice Dan Kelly announced today that he will run for an open spot on the Wisconsin Supreme Court next spring. Kelly was appointed to the state's top court in 2016 before losing his run for a full term in 2020. Kelly is the first conservative to announce their candidacy. He will be running against liberal judges Everett Mitchell of Dane County and Janet Prostowitz of Milwaukee County. The seat is being vacated by current Justice Pat Rogensack, who announced earlier this year that she will not be seeking re-election. After the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism released a report yesterday noting that Madison District 17 Alder Gary Halverson was briefly a member of the far-right organization The Oath Keepers, Madison officials are sounding the alarm. Halverson said yesterday that he was led to believe the organization was for veterans who cared about democracy and left the group a few months after joining. Common Council President Keith Furman and Vice President J.L. Curry released a statement today saying that even seconds of Googling would have revealed the Oath Keepers' far-right ties. They also pointed out that Halverson joined the group in the summer of 2020 when the Oath Keepers were recruiting members with anti-Black Lives Matter messaging. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway took to Twitter to voice her disapproval, simply posting a link explaining how someone can run for Common Council. In addition to participating in the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, the Oath Keepers have repeatedly voiced conspiracy theories surrounding both COVID and the 2020 presidential election, and have engaged in vigilantism at far-right protests across the country. 
With the coming closure of the pick and save on the city's south side, the area was set to be without a full-service grocery store for the first time since the 1950s. But the city announced today that Truman Olson Grocery will soon open on the south side, allowing the area to continue to have access to groceries. The city announced today that Christy Maurer of Maurer's Urban Market in Milwaukee will run the grocery store when it opens sometime before the closure of Pick and Save. The full-service grocery is set to hold everyday staples as well as fresh produce, meat, and a bakery. And finally, the Ironman Triathlon is in Madison this weekend, closing down streets across the city. The race will start at 6.45 Sunday morning until around midnight, with many roads being closed in downtown Madison, starting at around 11 a.m. for the running portion of the race. Some roads will also close around 7.30 a.m. until around 5.30 p.m. due to the biking portion of the race. You can find a full list of road closures on the City of Madison's website. And now, on to today's top stories. Opioid-related deaths in Dane County have risen more than 30% in the past five years. And deaths involving fentanyl have risen almost 70% in the same time frame. Last year, 149 people in Dane County died from opioid overdoses. Faced with these numbers, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi announced today an emergency initiative to combat overdoses. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi announced today a new initiative to reduce and prevent opioid and fentanyl abuse. The Harm Reduction and Prevention Act consists of $740,000 to fund a variety of opioid prevention methods, including outreach in Dane County schools, increase funding for Narcan, and form new partnerships with organizations around the county. The funding will be included in Parisi's 2023 budget proposal. At today's press conference, Parisi says that the plan looks to take a multi-angle approach towards tackling the opioid epidemic. We're addressing it on a number of levels. We're looking at prevention. Um, we're working in, in, in partnership with local school districts. We'll start being in school to educate people. There will be other education and outreach. There will be provision of fentanyl test strips. So, you know, right, right away, you know, trying to get out in front of this, educating people about the dangers of fentanyl and that one pill can kill. And then enhancing some of the programs we have to help people who have, have survived drug poisoning or an overdose and get them the help and the support that they need as soon as possible. In attendance at today's press conference was Carla Gaines, the co-chair of the African-American Opioid Coalition. She cited public health statistics that show that overdose death rates in Dane County are three times higher among black residents than their white counterparts. While the deadly synthetic opioid fentanyl presents in everything from counterfeit prescription pills in cocaine is an equal opportunity killer. It is taking a disproportionate amount of black families. One program is targeted at education from an early age, introducing a prevention and harm reduction curriculum all the way from elementary school to high school. Done in partnership with the nonprofit coalition Safe Communities Madison and Dane County, the program will pilot new education courses for schools focusing on identifying risks in opioid use. 
Safe Communities also plays another role in the new plan, with a new program to place recovery coaches in local hospitals. The goal is to reduce the amount of time a person who has experienced an overdose needs to wait before being connected to addiction recovery resources. Jewel Adams is a recovery coach with Safe Communities, wearing a shirt reading End Overdose. She says that, as someone who has personally seen two people she was working with die from an opioid overdose, her shirt is not just a statement. That's our fight. That's what we're fighting for today. Uh, that's what recovery coaching do. That's what African American Opiate Coalition is all about. We want to fit all off our streets. And we're fighting to get fentanyl off our streets. And until we could get it off our streets, we're doing drug poisoning prevention, harm reduction programs. Adams was not the only person there personally touched by the opioid epidemic. Charles Tubbs, director of the Dane County Emergency Management, lost a child to an opioid overdose. With Narcan in hand, Tubbs says that his role in emergency management has shown him the true extent of the opioid epidemic in Dane County. Some people want to take the position, these people are not real approach. But I tell you, they are our children. Our brothers, our sisters, moms, dads, friends, and the stranger in the street. They are not addicts, losers, criminals, or throwaway people. These are real live human beings. Tubbs says that he estimates that Narcan is used dozens of times in Dane County every single month. Another prong of today's plan is a program to facilitate Narcan distribution. Dane County Emergency Management is slated to get a prevention specialist who would oversee a program to give local EMS agencies the ability to leave Narcan rescue kits at the scene of an overdose so that it may be prevented in the future. These kits would be left with either a person at risk for an opioid overdose or a friend or family member able to assist them. Additionally, around $185,000 will be given to groups in the community to provide med lockboxes, Narcan, and fentanyl testing strips. These groups include the African American Opioid Coalition, the Pride and Prevention Coalition, and the Recovery Coalition of Dane County. Finally, the county will help create and fund a prevention coordinator at the Outreach LGBTQ Community Center. Steve Starkey is the executive director with Outreach. He says that it's difficult to say exactly how the opioid epidemic affects the LGBTQ community and hopes that the new prevention coordinator will help them to find out. So LGBTQ people tend to um, use drugs and alcohol and have addiction issues at a higher rate than the general population. That's been documented over decades. Um, but studies have not been done here um, in Dane County. Uh, Dane County Public Health did a study in 2016, so that's quite a while ago. Outreach does have an opioid addiction advocate, but right now they are only part-time. Starkey says that the prevention coordinator would work with other organizations to build the infrastructure needed to provide help to everyone in Dane County.
Today's initiative came as the state's Republican-controlled Budget Writing Committee finally approved a spending plan for $31 million received as part of a multi-state settlement with opioid manufacturers. That comes after state Republicans blocked a separate plan proposed by Governor Tony Evers last month. While the spending plans are 85 percent the same, the plan passed today includes funding for law enforcement, which was left out of the governor's plan. Meanwhile, the Dane County Board will vote tonight on a resolution to create a program to help supply local organizations with fentanyl testing strips, which only recently became legal for Wisconsin residents to own. That meeting begins tonight at 7. A total of $275,000 of the almost $740,000 will be included in Parisi's 2023 budget, which will be released on October 3rd. That includes funding for the Outreach Prevention Coordinator and the Prevention Specialist position in the Narcan Leave Behind program with Dane County Emergency Management. The rest of the funding will be introduced to the Dane County Board this evening to be released immediately. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. It's 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Each year, Wisconsin's land trusts invite the public to learn more about the properties they preserve during Wisconsin Land Trust Days. WORT reporter Katherine Garvins brings us this report from the field. The insects are just warming up for their nightly chorus as folks begin to arrive at the Mounds View grassland near Blue Mounds. The sun is low in the sky, flooding the prairie and the big red barn with golden light. We are here to learn about pollinators that work at night, the life cycle, behavior, and ecology of the moth species that live on this prairie. The event is part of Wisconsin Land Trust Days, an annual celebration of the work done by land trusts across the state. Our host tonight is Tim Hansel, philosopher by day and intrepid moth stalker by night. He is also a Wisconsin Master Naturalist and Education Coordinator for the Empire Sauk chapter of the Prairie Enthusiasts. So we're an organization that have multiple chapters all over southern Wisconsin, northern Illinois, eastern Iowa, and southeastern Minnesota. Uh, but essentially we are an organization that's whose mission is, is committed to restoration and preservation mm -hmm. of uh, grassland. So uh, tall grass prairie and oak savanna. So here at the Empire Sauk chapter, our main area is this Mounds View grassland, which is after acquiring 260 extra acres this summer, we are now up to 830 acres here just south of Blue Mountain. Tim says there were two workshops sponsored by the Prairie Enthusiasts as part of Land Trust Days this year. The other event, held in July, brought a nature artist to the prairie to teach attendees how to draw flowers and plants. This is actually the last workshop of the year, and we're talking about uh, night flyers. We're talking about moths and black lighting for moths, mm -hmm. as well as sugaring. So sort of two ways at night to attract moths to an area where you can take a look at them and survey and see what sorts of species that you get and mm -hmm. see some really sort of interesting specimens because mm -hmm. moths come in a big variety of flavors and so it's really exciting. 
He says Land Trust Days helps connect different sorts of organizations that share the same mission of conserving and restoring land in the state. This kind of ties into my other role as a Wisconsin Master Naturalist, where we do sort of volunteer work in uh, in educating people on uh, Wisconsin natural resources. It's it's a it's a fun connection with all these different uh, organizations and these different. Uh, groups who are more or less sort of committed to sort of a similar goal. We'll check in with our nighttime pollinators group a little later. But for now, let's learn more about the different organizations across the state, like the Prairie Enthusiasts, that preserve and protect wild spaces in Wisconsin. Mike Carlson is Executive Director of Gathering Waters, Wisconsin's Association for Land Trusts. In Wisconsin, we have just over 40 land trusts, independent land trusts, and when we say the term land trust, we essentially mean uh, nonprofit organizations that have a primary mission of protecting land for uh, any number of different conservation priorities. Priorities like wildlife habitat, outdoor recreation, water quality, and climate mitigation. So we do things like public policy advocacy, uh, advocating for public funding for land conservation. We help with training and technical assistance for land trust staff and board members, really helping to ensure that they're strong, sustainable nonprofits. They also focus on communications and outreach, and Land Trust Days is a big part of that. We're actually in our fifth year of this campaign. It's a statewide promotion uh, to really highlight and showcase the work that our land trust members do across Wisconsin. Mike says you can find Wisconsin Land Trust Day's event in pretty much every corner of the state. And this year, we're really excited that there were 41 land trust events that were registered as part of uh, Wisconsin Land Trust Days. And we had, you know, obviously quite a few in August, but just coming up here in September, there's going to be 14 events just in September alone, and then six that are in October. These events may take you to places you already know, but also provide a chance for new experiences. There's some really fun opportunities to get out and explore, I think, some places that perhaps members of the public haven't otherwise heard about or haven't had a chance to visit before. Um, and really, there's kind of something for everyone. For example, Glacial Lakes Conservancy, based in Sheboygan, is participating in Land Trust Days with eight events this year. We are 26 years old, and in that 26 years, we have saved from development 2,048 acres in five counties. That's Jennifer Rutten, the executive director of Glacial Lakes Conservancy. We have 28 conservation easements, which are contracts with landowners, and they are private properties. And we hold conservation easements that make this land protected forever. So we like to say that we're in the forever business. And then we have five properties that we own. Jennifer says they use Wisconsin Land Trust Days events to educate attendees about what they do. She says that it's important for the public to hear stories directly from landowners about why they choose a conservation easement. Some of these properties are over 100-year generational farms, agriculture that have been turned over to create beautiful hardwood forests and prairies and wetlands. So the story and the, the storytelling behind some of our events coming up on September 17th, we have one at a private um, conservation easement is going out with the family and, and hearing the stories of, of why they wanted to conserve it. Another of the Wisconsin Land Trust Days sponsored by Glacial Lakes is the annual Grandparents Day. 
And so we do that at our Willow Creek Preserve in Sheboygan, and it is our largest property that we own. And it's an urban oasis that sits in the middle of uh, the city of Sheboygan that not a lot of people know about. There are still over 20 events that you can attend before Land Trust Days winds down in mid-October. And there's more to explore throughout the year. Here's Mike Carlson again. It's important to note, too, that our Wisconsin Land Trust members, those just over 40 groups, really are holding events throughout the year. Uh, and we certainly urge folks to keep an eye out for those. We try to try to keep those updated on our website as much as possible. Mike adds that you can find more information about Wisconsin Land Trust Days at the event website at havefunoutside.org. There, you can also request a free Wisconsin Nature Guide that has been popular with event attendees or find out how to win a Yeti cooler. Back at the Moundsview grassland, Tim and Rob have set up the white tarps and black lights that will enable us to see our nighttime pollinators, and the kids are in charge of the fermented sugar concoction that will attract the nearby moths. Over the course of the evening, we've learned how to determine if a moth has smooth, comb, or feathered antennae, or if the wings have bands or spots, or maybe they're checkered or speckled. These features and others will help us identify a moth, or even report it as a citizen scientist. We've seen pictures of the moths we're likely to see, like the tiny, wavy-lined emerald, or some that we're less likely to see this time of year, like the rare, abbreviated underwing. The sun has set, gloriously, I might add, and the group spreads out between the two tarps. We are all eager for the first moth sighting. (laughs) 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 Reporting for WORT News, I'm Catherine Garvins. It's 6.33 p.m. and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, we air an excerpt from Out of D-Box podcast, which is focused on supporting current and formerly incarcerated people and their families. This week, host D. Star speaks with Zach and Veronica with Just Bakery, a training program for people experiencing significant barriers to finding work. They share details of the bakery program and the challenging roads they took to get where they are now. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, here with Zach Wisniewski and Veronica Diaz. All right. How y'all doing today? I'm good. I'm feeling good. Feeling good. Okay, so we're going to start with you, Veronica. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I am a teacher at Just Bakery. In August, it'll be a year of me working there. Oh, I'm Zach. I'm the lead instructor at Just Bakery. I teach all the people the main subjects and get everything organized. So, Veronica, where are you from? I grew up in Madison. I've been here since I was 10. I was born in New York. Parents are Dominican. They came to New York when my mom was pregnant with me. What about you, Zach? Born in Janesville. I've lived in Madison all my life. Traveled a little bit here and there, but mostly Madison, I would say, is majority of my life Madison. So what made you guys want to get into this type of work at Just Bakery? 
I had just got moved out of days, the domestic abuse shelter, and I was kind of not knowing what to do with my life. I was working at MSCR. I loved the kids, but I didn't like the staff. I felt like there was no direction. I wasn't being supported. And then my sober coach sent me um, a job application for Just Bakery. She's like, is for an assistant teacher. You know, I feel like you would fit it. And I've never heard of Just Bakery. So I looked them up. And when I saw what they stood for online, I was like, wow, this this is something that I could definitely get behind and actually feel like what I'm doing has meaning. I'm not just filling a role to get a paycheck to pay my bills. And when I interviewed with them, it was amazing. I got the job and I love it. Awesome. What about you, Zach? So my story is a little different. I'm actually a two-time participant myself. I took the program twice while I was incarcerated. I took it about 2018, I want to say. In 2018, I took the program um, my story is a little different. I didn't take the program for any like real like point at first. I just took it because I was incarcerated. I knew that it was a way to get out of jail. And who doesn't want to get out of jail for five days a week is what I was thinking, you know. But once I started taking the program and I started meeting all these different people with different resources and I started seeing the changes in my life and I realized like this isn't the life you want to live and there's so much other opportunity out there. I realized I needed to come back and take it. But unfortunately, by the time I realized that it was like a week before the final like curriculum test that we had to take at the at the school we do. And so I asked to come back and take it. And they were like, yeah, you can come take it again, but you're going to have to take the whole program over. So my last three months in jail, I was taking the program all the way over again. When I got out, I realized how hard it was still going to be. Like I had got all these resources, but I didn't realize how hard it was still going to be as a felon. And so I went and worked at this, uh, I worked at Panera for a little bit. And then I realized I wasn't even supposed to be actually working there. So then it was hard to find a job. And I saw that just bakery was actually hiring assistant positions. So I went over there and was like, Hey, I really want to do this. This is something that helped change my life. I think I could do this. You know, I, I like the teaching aspect of it. Let me get a chance. So I took the assistant position. It was only gonna be like a six month position. And then I ended up like four years. Yeah. And now I'm the lead instructor. What are some of the obstacles that you guys had to overcome in your life to get to this point to be instructors at Just Bakery? I would say um, some of the biggest obstacles would be uh, definitely like drug addiction. Like that's one of the things that stops me or stopped me pretty much every every day. Like everything that got me out of like before I went to Huber, I failed bill monitoring, failed drug court, right? Failed as um, an inmate worker even, right? So how was I gonna get sober and get a job? Like that was like the hardest part for me. I didn't even think I was gonna be able to succeed in probation. So I think drug addiction was the hardest um, obstacle. And then just the support, right? You have all these friends that you're used to hanging out with that aren't always the best influence. Now you gotta start over, right? You gotta go out there and I don't know, you gotta pretty much represent yourself. Like this is not who what I'm trying to do anymore. And you gotta accept that a lot of those people might not wanna be there for you. A lot of obstacles for me started, well, some of them started from young. Sexual abuse is an obstacle wow. that I had to come over. And I feel like a lot of girls in the Hispanic community have had to deal with that as well because it's so common and that's not a good thing. Um, and then I grew up Mormon, actually. So not being around anything, like not even seeing a person smoke a cigarette, not being even seeing beer in real life to then being 13 and seeing all of that, I went crazy. So when I was young, I guess I had romanticized being a drug addict. So it kind of had like the opposite effect on you, you know, because as parents, we want to shield our kids away from the world. But it's like you don't want to shield them too much because then when they do get presented with the temptations of the world that they, like you said, kind of just go crazy. And then they start to see it on TV and romanticize it and say, oh, I, you know, because all you see on TV is like people 
drinking and having fun yeah. and you know the commercials and hey you know have this beer have this wine and i would watch know? mtv and in my head i'd be like okay that's what i want to be like you know so and then you're seeing that oh to get girl you have to get all the guys by showing your skin and doing all this stuff and then when I was younger I had a lot of male attention which I didn't like I cut up my face you know I would wear goth clothes I would make myself scary so that men didn't want to approach me wow. you know and that obviously I had a lot of healing that I had to do myself growing up addiction is definitely my biggest obstacle so and and then now i feel like especially in the position that i'm in now i want to be someone that people strive to be like okay so she's able to go to work and have a regular life and now right now where i'm at two years ago i was homeless living in my car you know and right now i have my own apartment and i have a car and i did all that because just bakery helps you get that stability and even if you mess up they're not going to turn their back on you and that was a big relief because i've been at jobs where one mistake you're gone where you you're living in fear of not having a paycheck and this job it's like a family i've never worked at a place like that and they treat all their students just the same way as they treat the staff so that that's this is what really helped me to get my life more together but before i got this job i was already on that path but i needed this to help give me that foundation so um i meet this boy um at the methadone clinic so at this point in my life i have been um an addict for like four years i'm now on methadone and i stopped myself from using um but i'm still escorting and i meet this guy um at the clinic and he comes up really like all nice and with manners and ask for my number and then we start talking and then we start dating um and he starts living with me um at my mom's and he and then it doesn't take too long before you know he starts grabbing my arm a little too hard or he starts um putting his hands around my neck when he wants me to stop talking. Um, so slowly it starts getting to where I'm realizing I'm in a bad situation um, and he wouldn't let me leave him. And after actually one of the uh, times that he was really physical with me um, where it got really bad, I kicked him out. At this point, I'm living in an apartment with a girl at my job. I'm not escorting anymore. I'm just working because he wanted me to stop escorting. He did not want me to do that. For a couple years, my boyfriend that I met when I was 18, he got me escorting and on drugs. Thanks so much for that important podcast. You can hear more online. Uh, each week, WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout sits down with Pat Hasberg of the DNS Bait Shop in Madison to find out where the fish are biting and where they aren't. This week, they the duo takes a trip to visit some of the area's many rivers to find out how fishing a river is different from fishing a lake. Alrighty, I am on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, it's been uh, been kind of a warm couple of days, but uh, how has the fishing been lately? Fishing's been good. It uh, seems to be picking up around the chain. Uh, these 
cool nights and shorter days have got the fish sort of started to move into their fall patterns, and uh, which means they're putting the feed bag on and uh, starting to get ready for winter, if you can believe that. All right, and so now I sort of want to talk a little bit today about the sort of lake or the rivers in the area, I should say, which we really haven't touched on too much. But obviously, we have the the Yahara runs, uh, you know, right right by here. So what what's been going on over at the Yahara lately? Well, you know, the Yahara runs through the uh, chain of lakes here and uh, offers uh, a lot of good fishing opportunities. Um, there are fish that get caught down in the Stoughton area. Uh, there's a dam down there in Stoughton, and I know a lot of people do well down there. Uh, as far as ice fishing, uh, just uh, north of Stoughton, there's Viking Park, which is a kind of a shallow, wide spot in the Har River that uh, folks do well there. Um, it's shallow water. There's a dog park there, but uh, a lot of fish to be caught in there. And I know uh, there's some opportunities north of the chain as, as the river gets uh, quite a bit smaller heading upstream, upstream there that, um, you know, there's uh, lots, lots of opportunities in the Ahar River. And I can attest that uh, I, I have caught some real big monsters down at the dam down in Stoughton. That is, that is definitely an all right place over there. But looking at sort of rivers, uh, how, how do you sort of fish a river different uh, than you would fish a lake? Or is there any difference or do you basically do the same thing if you're, you know, looking at uh, one of Madison's lakes here? Well, uh, the obvious difference between a river and a lake is the current. So you, what uh, I do and what most people do is kind of use that current to your advantage, uh, whether it's uh, casting out uh, and drifting something along in the current and kind of uh, jigging it back towards yourself or reeling it back and using that current to give your lures uh, some motion. Or if you're just using bobbers, you know, just tossing bobbers out and, you know, the, the current keeps that bait moving and, and trying to get it in front of a bunch of different fish uh, can be real effective. But, uh, you know, the, the current is really the, the main uh, difference. And, and it, like I said, if you can use that uh, to your advantage, you can uh, find a lot of fish. And then what about some of the, some of the other uh, rivers in the area? Uh, is, is there any in particular that you uh, are thinking of these days? Absolutely. I mean, you've got, well, the Wisconsin River being the largest river in the area, and uh, Sauk City, uh, you know, just north of town, is only a half hour or so from the shop here, uh, has, you know, I think there's 89 different species of fish that swim in that river. Everything that you can catch in Wisconsin swims in that river, and uh, the Sauk City, or the Prairie du Sac Dam uh, up there uh, is a great spot to find a mixed bag of fish. Anything from walleye to panfish, smallmouth bass, some giant catfish come out of there, sturgeon. Uh, any, anything that swims in Wisconsin comes out of the Wisconsin River. But uh, smaller rivers around the area include the Rock River and down by Fort Atkinson and Jefferson in those areas. Um, have been producing a lot of catfish lately. And the walleye action is going to only pick up and get better as uh, the temps cool down here. Uh, the Sugar River, just south of town, also... Uh, has uh, some fantastic trout fishing as you get when you're up near the Paoli area and up near Barona. But as you get further down past Belleville and down into Albany, that way you get um, into some good smallmouth territory down there, some big uh, pike, and really uh, uh, some catfish and a nice mixed bag as you go further downstream. 
You know, especially with the sugar rivers, you know, sometimes you look at it and you think, well, that doesn't look like a very big river. There can't be too big a fish in there. But I, I, I can say that there's definitely some big fish, especially in the sugar river. There's, I've caught some real big pike coming out of that. So now sort of shifting a little bit, looking at the Madison Lakes, uh, let's just start off at the top. Lake Mendota, what's been happening over there? Well, the perch bite can, continues to be a bit of a struggle for folks. Uh, they're catching good numbers of fish, but the fish tend to run on the small side. So um, the, there's a lot of sorting that you have to do to, to find uh, some larger fish. But the bluegill bite has really uh, increased in the last week or so. I've been hearing about some good numbers of some really nice-sized fish uh, coming off the weed lines. And actually out on mid-lake humps, uh, which is not exactly typical, um, they've been getting a lot of nice bluegills out there mixed right in with the walleye and smallmouth bass that they've been catching out there all summer. And now looking over at Monona, what's been happening over there? Monona uh, continues to be a fantastic bluegill fishery over there as well. Uh, those fish aren't congregated on the weed line so much. They're out over deeper water, so most folks are just drifting along and uh, out over basically anywhere in the lake from 30 feet to 70 feet of water and just uh, hanging a jig off the side of the boat and um, finding fish all, all over out there, about 15 to 20 feet down. But they're also, uh, if, you're, if you're shorebound, they're getting uh, some good numbers of crappies and bluegills off the Monona Terrace Wall and then also in um, Monona Bay, which would be the Brittingham Park area and the area they call the Triangles, which is formed by the train tracks over there. So now, Pat, I, you know, I was just outside for about an hour for an outdoor press conference, and I have to say I am, I am covered in sweat right now. You should be very happy that you're not here in the studio here with me, but it's, it's been a warm sort of all week, or fair at the very least. Uh, but, and so I was looking at my phone, and I was looking at this weekend for the weather, and it, it is supposed to cool down here, so, and we are getting closer to fall. So as we get closer to some of these cooler temperatures, what can we sort of uh, start to expect uh, uh, looking forward here into fall? Well, those fish are, they, they uh, like everybody else, they notice the days are getting shorter and the nights are getting cooler and they know that winter is on its way. So they're starting to bulk up and get ready for, uh, you know, some leaner times ahead, sort of, I guess, just like we do. All right. And we are running up against the clock here, Pat. Any final uh, thoughts or fishing advice for all the people out there? Um, not, not exactly. I, you know, with, uh, with, the, with the days getting shorter and the, and the good temps winding down, I can just, I just encourage folks to get out there and enjoy the last bit of good weather while it, while it's here. And you know, you're not going to catch them at home, right? So get out there and enjoy it. I was looking, looks like Saturday is going to be our last uh, truly nice day for a little while here. So make sure that you get out there. And, uh, hey, it looks like it's going to be a great fishing day. Well, Pat, uh, thanks for coming on again. You can always hear an updated fishing report anytime that you want just by calling one easy-to-remember number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thanks for talking, and good luck out there. Thanks, Nate. Always a pleasure. Have a good one. It's 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
In a continuation from last week's Radio Chipstone, Jennifer Fields is again joined by Anne Smart-Martin. Over a decade ago, Professor Smart-Martin introduced Jennifer to a whole new way of looking at and thinking about objects. You'd think after her many years of teaching, she would be able to get to enjoy her retirement. Well, not just yet. In this edition of Radio Chipstone, Fields and Smart Martin continue their conversation about material culture and explore the notion that a good object can be the spark that ignites better questions. I have a collection of ceramics and it's partly because I always say I love all kinds of older objects which, which I teach. I have a complete passion. But ceramics set the hair on the back of my neck up and that is something that I, I really, really um, enjoy seeing and learning and thinking about. One of the very first things I was able to do is as, as the historical archaeologist was getting a lot involved with the documentary records. So when I was pretty young. I was doing a lot of documentary research or NEH grants where I was looking at merchants' records to see what kind of ceramics were sold in America. So because of that, I was able to sort of get this interest in things and I began to go to antique stores and yard sales and all those kind of things, but always buying on the cheap because I was poor. You don't make any money as a historical archaeologist or a college student. But so I was always looking for those things. And part of the excitement was that showed that I had some knowledge that other people didn't, right? Well, you earned it. Right, you got it. I got this thing. You know, you know that when you go to a yard sale or something. And, and, uh, but that, that, that whole passion. So I'm not allowed to buy anything anymore because my house is full. <laughs> um, but this opportunity did come. And, it's a little tiny sugar dish. I saw you gasp. I've never seen a lip on a sugar dish like that. And the same kind of decoration. And this twisting. And it's creamware. And it's things that I studied very early on in my career and what I wrote about and became known for in the, the small world in which I traverse. So it's a little bit of a, a happy, not happy, it's a little bit of a, of a thing that I had the opportunity to, to get on the cheap, and um, so I did it. There's a little present to myself, partially from my retirement. So describe it. Well, people today would say, oh my gosh, it's so fussy. You know, we like clean lines, and this is anything, anything but clean lines. It's got kind of purpley painted flowers, it's got the, the, the top of a, oh, excuse me, it's a sugar bowl. I should have said that first. So it's got a lid and it's got a little foot on it. And it's got two little handles that are braided ropes. But so you can see already, see, it's, it's got this whole sort of, sort of garden idea. Um, but it's very ornamental. And you could see this and say, this is going to get broken. It is so ornamental. But I look at it too and I say, think, I, I think about all the history of the making, the ornamenting, the ideas about it. Where do those ideas about nature come from? Why were they so interested in showing these different kinds of plants? What were they doing by showing these ruffles all around that you see on furniture too? So again, 
it's not that this is necessarily something that everyone would love today to have at their dinner table, but to me it gives me this real satisfaction, this, this passion that says, this is a really, really good object. This is a beautiful thing. And, um, and the fact that it's still around is amazing. Um, but that, it gives me great, it gives great pleasure because it tells me so much about us. My current project actually comes out of an object place too. I uh, was doing an exhibition of a collection of objects from a, a Wisconsin family. And as I walked through this collection in his home, and I looked, I kept thinking, what unites all these things? And I talked about status before, I talked about making before, I, you know, it's all these things I'd worked on before. The difference was they reflected. Well, the difference was is they, they, some of them gleamed, they glistened. And it made me start thinking about light and how it is that in our lives, with the flip of a light bulb, we can have and see whatever we want. And in the past, that was not true. And so I've, I've kind of gone this other direction and looking at sort of how did, how did the changing technologies of light um, affect not only what you see, but how you see, and how it changed human behavior, it changed relationships. You grouped around the fireplace, or you grouped around the single candle. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, I have some really great references, uh, one of which was someone talking about what it must have been like before you could have even a single candle at dinner. Um, what would it have been like because people couldn't see you they couldn't see, not only could you not see what you eat, eat um, but that they, and that because of that you couldn't see what you eat, your other sensory paths were disrupted. But finally, how could you, that jokes must have come in with candles because you, it's the only way you can see people's faces and understand the levity. So, I, so this is a kind of idea I'm working on now, which is a, which is a, I, I joke, I call it the uh, material culture of immater immateriality. Because <laughs> it's light, it's not a thing, uh, not an object, but it's all the objects around it and, and the way it's commodified that makes it, a th makes it an object. So it's a really tough project because no one talks about, well, I went into to the room and, and um, I had to light three candles. But it was, light was expensive and um, troublesome and dirty. So all these things I'm working on. Dangerous. Dangerous. My favorite thing, and this is, I don't even know if it's a morbid curiosity, but possibly, is to look at old accounts of people's interactions with electricity. And the stories about how young so-and-so was felled by the deeming of electricity, his skin touched the live wire as he crossed the threshold, and how this desire to almost literally bring us out of a dark time into the light could be a dangerous proposition. Could be a dangerous thing to do. Oh, banish the darkness is is exactly what's going on, and people were afraid. I mean, and rightly so. Candles burned down houses and killed people. And but that when gas comes in, who wants to attach yourself to a gas line when the gas was going to blow up your house? There's all kinds of ways in which dangers, dangers with small children. So many ways in which we can think about something that's so everyday for us is something that's 
that's deeply contested in the past. So I always say before electricity is this cut point which says, how did our people artificially like the past? And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Special thanks to contributors Catherine Garvins, D. Starr, and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan was our engineer. Nate Wegehout produced this newscast. And Shali Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, you don't have to miss a single episode of the local news. You can catch it as a podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening, and good night. Thank mm-hmm. you.